Well, good evening. It's good to be back with you all. Um, two weeks ago, I was in Cedarville, Ohio, because I actually serve on the Board of Trustees at Cedarville University, so I was there for a trustee meeting. Uh, it is slap dab in the middle of nowhere. I mean, they're, they are surrounded by cows and horses and cornfields, but it's a wonderful school and very, uh, very well led by a two-time graduate of Southeastern, so, and then last week was our fall break, and so... I'm delighted that we prayed for uh, such a massive group in India tonight. Uh, just by way of information, next to May, uh, May the 18th through the 28th, Southeastern will be taking a group to India. Uh, we have, goodness, close to 30 graduates or current 2 plus 2, 2 plus 3 students that are serving the Lord in India right now. And so we're going to go over into Delhi, spend a day, and then we're going to break into multiple teams, uh, five to seven, ever how many go. We're hoping maybe uh, we're going to probably cap it at 40. And we'll go out throughout the country and be with our students and graduates where they are, working with them. And then we'll come back to Delhi for a day and a half of debriefing. And then we'll come back home. Uh, if you'd be interested in going, you let me know. Uh, it's really for India. And that length of time, it's very inexpensive. It's just right at $3,000, which that's cheap. Uh, and it takes care of everything except your passport. So if you think you might have an interest, you let me know, and um, we'll see what we can do. But we're very excited about going. God's moving in India, but it's also uh, a very tough time. Their, their government now is a, of a very militant Hindu uh, sort. And so a number of us have been uh, having real difficult times getting our visas. Uh, but God has worked it out for most of us. And so anyway, just something for you to at least pray for. But if you have an interest, you let me know. Well, we've come to the last four chapters of the book of Revelation. And tonight, we come to one of the most encouraging, and boy, we need some encouragement, and blessed passages in all of the book of Revelation. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb, or what some have called heaven's hallelujah chorus. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 through verse 10. You know, some Bible scholars have said that the book of Revelation could be called a tale of two cities. There is the evil, wicked city of Babylon, and there's the wonderful, glorious city of the new Jerusalem, which we will read about when we get to chapters 21 and 22. But it has also been said that it could be called a tale of two women. There is the prostitute of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, and there is the bride of the Lamb in chapter 19. And interestingly, the two of them actually come together in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 through verse 10, and their destinies could not be more different. One is destined for glory and joy and blessing and eternal happiness, and the other is destined for destruction, death, and eternal suffering. And it really does matter uh, which city you are a citizen of whether it's Babylon or whether it is the new Jerusalem. Now, if we were to try to take a single word tonight and capture what Revelation 19, 1 through 10 is all about, that's very easy. It is the word hallelujah. That word occurs four times in this paragraph, and this is fascinating to me. It does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament, not even one time. Just think of how we talk about hallelujah this and hallelujah that, which I'm all for but to realize the word itself only occurs in one chapter of the Bible, Revelation 19, and it only occurs in verses 1 through 10, and actually you hear it there and you hear it nowhere else in all 
of the New Testament. In fact, it occurs in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Now, a little historical story, and then we jump in. Most of us know what is known as Handel's Messiah, uh, written by George Frederick Handel in 1741. And, of course, Handel's Messiah's most famous oration is the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's interesting to note that when it begins anywhere in the world, Christians in unison stand, and they remain standing until the end of that song. That's not what they do in heaven. When they hear the Hallelujah Chorus, they don't stand up and wait till the end and then applaud. But rather, when they hear the chorus, as we're going to see in our text, they fall down and they worship. Indeed, it says there in verse 4 that they fall down and worship the God who is seated on the throne. Why? Let's put it in a little context here. Because he has judged the great prostitute, the great whore. We see that in verses 1 through 5, but in particular, verse 2. Secondly, he has prepared the bride, the church, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's verses 6 through 8. And then he has directed all of heaven and earth to keep their attention on Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 9 and verse 10. So I've in essence given you the outline that we're going to follow tonight. They praise God for his salvation and judgment of the great harlot of Babylon. Uh, They glorify God for His bride, the church, and the marriage supper that is now taking place. And then they worship God for the witness to Jesus that summarizes verse 9 and verse 10. And actually, the Hallelujah Chorus is a response to a command that we saw the last time we were together in chapter 18 and verse 20. Look what the Bible says there. Rejoice over her, over who? Over the prostitute, over Babylon. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for her against you, therefore you can shout hallelujah. So, in a real sense, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, is the appropriate response to God's judgment of Babylon in chapter 17 and chapter 18, but it also does this. It anticipates the second coming of Jesus in chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. It anticipates the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus in chapter 20, verse 1 through verse 6. It anticipates the final judgment of Satan in chapter 20, verse 7 through 10. It anticipates the great white throne judgment of chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. And it anticipates the establishment of the new heaven, the new uh, Jerusalem, and also the new earth in chapters 21 and 22. Now, I don't think we can push this too far, but I would make an observation. It seems that the events of chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22 are sequential. You'll see the phrase, after this, after this, after this. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, after what? The judgment of Babylon. I saw the following. Uh, Look at what it says in chapter uh, 19, verse 11. Then I saw after what? After the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then you come to chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw. Then you come to chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw. Then you come to chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw. And so there seems to be a chronological sequencing beginning here in chapter 19, which if that is true, it is interesting that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place before the second coming of Jesus. And the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in heaven with the saints 
before the second coming of Jesus. And if that is true, then how did the saints get into heaven before they come back with Jesus? And of course, that would be supportive, but not be decisive. But that would be supportive of what I've argued earlier as a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, that the church is taken up into heaven before the seven-year tribulation. We are with the Lord in heaven during the tribulation, and then we come back with Him following the tribulation, and I would even argue following the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, before I go on, one more thing. I've got really, really good friends that believe the marriage supper of the Lamb is actually the millennial kingdom. And so what is described in 19, 1 through 10 is then given its uh, chronological um, limitations or chronological parameters, that's a better word, in chapter 20. I understand how they can make that argument. I, I do. I just don't think it is correct. I think the marriage supper of the Lamb actually occurs before the coming again of the Lord Jesus, and therefore it supports the idea that the church is already with the Lord in heaven. All right? So, been a lot of bad news up and through chapter 18. Now we're going to have a lot of good news in chapter 19 and following. So look with me first of all in verses 1 through 5 that we should indeed be praising God for His salvation. Let me read the verses. Then we'll go back and comment on them. After this, that is after the destruction of Babylon, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And they were crying out. And here's what they're crying. Hallelujah. Salvation, number one, and glory, number two, and power, number three, belong to our God. Well, why? Well, number one, for His judgments are true and just. Secondly, He has judged the great prostitute, that is Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. He has brought justice on behalf of his martyrs. Once more they cried out, verse 3, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, so be it. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His slaves, His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Verse 1 begins with that connecting phrase I mentioned a moment ago, after this. In other words, in light of God's judgment of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, there is a celebration and worship service that takes place in heaven. It was after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. And where is the great multitude located? They are located in heaven. By the way, that phrase, loud voice, you would know this. It is the Greek phrase, phone megalon. Phone megalon. Phone, phonograph. Phonographic machine that makes noise. Well, phone uh, you, uh, uh, phonetics deals with how things sound. Megalay, mega, so a mega voice. A very loud voice is what they hear in heaven. And he says it's of a great multitude. Now, who is this great multitude? Is it angels? It could be. Uh, is it at the church triumphant? It could be. Is it possible that both angels and believers are mingled together in this great hallelujah uh, shout? It may be. I like that idea the best. One thing that is clear... Uh, they're not quiet and stayed in their worship, but they are loud and they are boisterous and enthusiastic. And again, I want to be clear. Uh, sometimes when we worship, we should be 
quieter. We should be silent. We should be reflective and meditative. No question about it. But there are other times, and I know we're Baptists, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with us clapping our hands. There's absolutely nothing wrong with us shouting, Amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, as Brother Bill will say. That's like saying, sick him to a bulldog when it comes to a preacher. You give him a little amen here and now and a little hallelujah and preach it, brother, and you'd be surprised at what it does for us. I mean, I'd be honest with you, it's not much fun preaching to zombies. It's not fun preaching to people that look like they've been vaccinated with pickle juice and they just sit there like a wooden Indian and you're just like, am I like getting through at all? And so in heaven, uh, I guess there'll be places for the quiet types, but praise God, there'll be places for the Baptocostals as well who want to be loud and enthusiastic in their worship. And so what do they do? With a loud voice, they cry, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The word hallelujah, hallelujah. Of course, Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh, the sacred name of God revealed in the Old Testament. And literally it means praise Yah, or we always say hallelujah means praise the Lord. And that is just as well in terms of what it means. It indeed is a word that accompanies and fronts a number of psalms. For example, Psalm 106. 113, 112, and 111, uh, 135, 146 through 50, all begin with the word hallelujah. So it's a Hebrew phrase you'll hear it quite often, but it's only found in the New Testament in chapter 19, verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Now, six things are noted in verse 1 and verse 2, for their praise of Yahweh, their praise of the Lord. First of all, they praise Him for His salvation. You see that there in verse 1. His glory, also in verse 1, and His power. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Then in verse 2, they praise Him for His judgment, because they are true and they are just judgments. They praise Him, number five, for His judgment of the great prostitute, that is, of Babylon. And they also praise Him for avenging the blood of His servants. Acts of the word servants. Do any of you have the word in your Bible, slaves? It is the Greek word doulos, which could easily have been translated slaves. So what yours has? They, they, they praise Him because He's avenged the blood of His slaves. And of course, the idea is... He has avenged his martyrs. He's avenged those who have shed their blood for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 then records the second hallelujah as a sort of heavenly encore, if you like, to the heightened, dramatic quality of the scene. God is praised because it says the smoke from her, that is the great prostitute, her judgment goes up forever and ever. Now let me make a quick word here. When it comes to God's judgment, never ever have the idea that God is capricious, uh, that God is vindictive, uh, that God is unfair. As we just read a moment ago, His judgments are true and just. In other words, God never gives anyone what they don't deserve, and God does give us what we do deserve. And therefore, God is absolutely perfect, just, Righteous. No one will ever stand before God in heaven and shake their fist in His face and say, you weren't fair to me. 
You gave me what I don't deserve. No, if anything, God gives them less than they deserve. The fact of the matter is, our God is completely just in His judgment. He is totally true and He is totally just. David Platt, who is now the president of the National Mission Board, says this of God's judgment. If God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil and injustice and suffering in the world, He would not be true and He would certainly not be just. God is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised because He is just. Brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when God is going to make everything right. We may not see it in our lifetime. We may not see it in this world. But you mark it down. There's coming a day, as the book of Genesis says, when the God of all the earth will do right. And so they praise Him because of His justice. And then in verses 4 and 5, we have the third hallelujah, and we add to our heavenly choir, here they are, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. So clearly, angels and humans here are coming together, and they are clearly of one mind in their adoration and worship of God. And here we note, they don't stand and at the end applaud the hallelujah chorus. No, no. The 24 elders, the redeemed, the four living creatures, these angelic beings we met all the way back in chapter 4, they fell down and they worshiped the God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen. So be it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both the small, I'm glad they're there because that's me, and also the great. Now, a number of interesting things about verse 4 and verse 5. First of all, we don't know who's speaking from the throne there in verse 4. It could have been an angel or one of the four living creatures or even one of the elders. The text does not specify who, but it does specify what. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. I like what John Piper says in capturing the corporate nature of what is going on here. He says, and I quote, Worship then is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. In His presence is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship, then, is the public savoring of the worth of God, and the beauty of God, and the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven, and to all of Babylon, that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all of our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed." couple of things. Number one, this is the last time we'll see the four living creatures and it's the last time we'll see the 24 elders. They vanish and we don't see them anymore. They, they move off the scene. Secondly, when you think about uh, how righteous God's judgment is and how all that is a part of this world is going to someday be burned up and completely destroyed, uh, I'm glad. Uh, that makes me happy. 
I thrill at the thought that all that is evil and wicked and malicious and ugly and painful in this world is going to go away forever and ever and ever. It's much worse than we ever thought. How many of you have been keeping up with the news and uh, you've heard that uh, Playboy, who would ever thought that I would mention Playboy in a message at Wake Crossroads Baptist Church, but Playboy has decided that they will no longer uh, publish nude pictures in Playboy magazine. Now, you can say, well, I think that's great. No, it's their surrender. If you've read the press releases, you will have heard that the Playboy, at its height, had 8 million subscribers. Today, they have only 800,000. You do the math. 10% of what they once had. Furthermore, those who now run Playboy acknowledge that they can no longer compete with the pornographic world that we now live in. And they boasted in the fact that their success has been their destruction. You see, they in many ways opened up Pandora's box. And now Pandora's box has consumed them. After all, why do you need a Playboy magazine when you can take a device like this called a smartphone and I turn that thing on and I slide that little thing off and about three clicks of this thing and I can be on a pornographic site just like that that would make the people of Playboy blush. That's the world we now live in. That, by the way, is Babylon. And the Bible says the smoke of her torment is going to go up forever and ever and ever. Unless you ever get deceived by this world, there is nothing innocent about what takes place in the pornographic world. Women are exploited. Children are exploited. And even those that find themselves dabbling only in what we call soft pornography, open the gateway for the more hard pornography where people are badly, tragically abused. You, you, you contribute to that ultimately. And the Bible says that our God's judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute and her smoke goes up forever and ever and ever. And that is a component of the salvation of our God that we praise Him for. And I do praise Him for that. Hugh Hefner's going to get his day. He's going to get his day. By the way, they did an interview with him several years ago. I read about today. And he says he believes in God, but not the God of the Bible. Uh, he believes there's a creator, but certainly not a God like is revealed in the Bible. Well, I got news for him. He's wrong. And he's going to meet him. And given his age, probably pretty soon. I'll move on. Number two. We glorify God for His bride. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. And he uses this beautiful parallelism here. First, it's like the roar of many waters, and it's like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Well, what were they crying out? Well, even louder than the first group. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty, there's that magnificent phrase that occurs nine times in Revelation, He reigns. And because the Lord our God Almighty reigns, well, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult 
and give Him glory. And one of the reasons we give Him the glory is the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's the Lord Jesus. And His bride, that's you and me, the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, let's put it in context. Verses 1 through 5, we've glorified a God of salvation, glory, and power. That's actually verse 1. A God whose judgments are always true and just. A God who judges evil, corruption, immorality. A God who avenges the blood of His servants. That's verse 2. We've also glorified a God who welcomes all who fear Him, small and great. That's verse 5. So now the text moves forward. The argument is pushed forward. And he wants us to glorify God for two additional reasons. Number one, he is an almighty God who reigns as sovereign Lord over all things. That's verse 6. And secondly, he is a God who has arranged from all eternity for the marriage of his Son, the Lord Jesus, to a host of saved sinners, purified, beautified by his own blood that the Bible calls the church. Now, notice that verse um, 6 begins just like verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the loud voice. The loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, verse 1, and the loud voice of a great multitude in verse 6, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder. So he describes this magnificent vision and this incredible sound that's deafening. It's like a mighty waterfall, cascading thunder. And they cry out for the fourth and final time, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And why do they do that? Well, number one, He's the Lord our God, the Almighty. This is again this wonderful title that's ascribed only in Revelation to our God. The only one time it isn't is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, but there it's just quoting an Old Testament passage. So the phrase, the Lord God, the Almighty, occurs only as an ascription to our God in the book of Revelation. And I like what Robert Mountain says here. I quote him. The previous hallelujahs of, hallelujahs of verses 1, 3, and 4 pointed back to the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18. But the hallelujah of verse 6 points forward in anticipation of the coming wedding of the Lamb. And he further notes that the title Almighty literally means the one who holds all things in His control. The one who holds all things in His control. So we are singing hallelujah, praise the Lord, because this is an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, and He's now inaugurating His universal visible and permanent kingdom and reign over all things. And so, what has been true in heaven forever is about to be true on earth. Or as one man said, the prayer that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, let your kingdom come on earth as it is done in heaven, is about to be fulfilled. Now look at verse 7. With the arrival then of the reign of God, also comes the long-awaited day of what we call the marriage of the Lamb. That is, the Lord Jesus and His bride, the church, being wedded together. And as a result of this great day that we will be there participating, there's rejoicing, uh, there's exulting, there's giving of God great glory. Now, it's interesting. 
The idea of God marrying His people is not just a New Testament image. You also find it in the Old Testament as well. For example, in uh, Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 7. In Hosea 2, 19. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. And of course, the most famous passage of all that talks about the bride of Christ and Christ as the husband is, of course, that same passage we talk about when it comes to husbands and wives on earth, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So what you have beautifully described there is now coming to fruition in Revelation chapter 19. The bride of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now, Mounts again is helpful here because there's a beautiful ceremony that took place in the ancient world. When we have a wedding today, uh, we know how it pretty much unfolds if it's normal in our Western context. You're going to have a, a wedding rehearsal, uh, which everybody, by the way, always shows up late, fires me up, which is why I always tell the folks to be there 30 minutes before I actually want them there, and then they might, just kind of like y'all are on Sunday mornings, you know, church starts at 10.30, and y'all come dragging your tails in at 10.45, 10.50. So not us, yeah, but your brothers and sisters come dragging their tails in at 10.45, 10.50. I guess it's just because they think the preaching is so wonderful. That's the only part they really want to be there for. But the fact of the matter is, same thing happens in wedding rehearsals. They don't show up on time. They drag in late, fires me up, makes me mad. And so I have to deal with it with God before all that takes place. Then the next day, you have the wedding. And they seldom start on time either. And because the bride's, you know, she's, she's the bride. And she kind of gets to do what she wants to when she wants to. And so she just kind of, you know, takes her time. Plus her daddy, if he loves her, is, is back there bubbling like a fool and he didn't want to give her away. I mean, what dad wants to give his precious daughter to some scum-sucking male? I mean, I had four boys, praise God, so I never had to go through that. But I can see it in their eyes. And so uh, he, he's delaying it. So finally, though, it happens. She walks down the aisle. We have a big ceremony. And then after they get married, we go somewhere for a reception again. That the bride and the groom take pictures for an hour, hour and a half, which is one of the stupidest rituals. I always try to stop it. I do. I work hard against it, and but it, I, I don't, you know, I don't have any say at that point. So then we're there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, they show up, but even then, they have to go do what? Cut the cake. And then finally, we get to eat. And by then, we're all starved to death and mad and mean and been out of shape. Well, that's an American wedding. That's an American wedding. I think I've described it pretty accurately, to be honest with you. And you've been there, done that. Well, that's not how it worked in the ancient world. Let me describe, using again my uh, mentor Robert Mounts, to tell you how weddings took place in the ancient world. Some of you know this, but it's good to be reminded. So I quote, In biblical times, a marriage involved two major events, or three, if you count the processional as one of them. The first major event was the betrothal, and the second was the wedding. Now, you know the betrothal. Remember, Joseph betrothed himself to Mary, which means they were legally married, but they had not consummated the marriage. Okay, But legally, they would have had to have a, 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 a formal divorce uh, take place for their, 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 their union to be separate. All right, So, two major events, the betrothal and the wedding. These were normally separated by a period of time, sometimes as much as a year, during which the two individuals were considered husband and wife, and such were under the obligations of faithfulness, which again is why in the biblical story of Joseph and Mary, it appeared that she'd been unfaithful because she's pregnant with Jesus, and therefore he was going to do what? He was going to divorce her because in that period of time when they were testing, she'd failed the test. So that's what you have going on there, all right? The wedding, though, began with a procession uh, to the bride's house. 
which was followed by a return to the house of the groom for the marriage feast. So the wedding would almost always take place at the home of the groom. All right? By analogy, the church is espoused to Christ by faith. And now we await the parousia when the heavenly groom will come for his bride, return to heaven for the marriage feast that then will last for all of eternity. So verses 7 and 8 speak of the preparation of the bride for her wedding day. And notice what it says about her there in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself. This is the only time in Revelation where the saints are described as making themselves ready, preparing themselves as the bride of Christ for His coming. Alright? So it says there that they, uh, uh, the bride has made herself ready, and in making herself ready, it was granted to her, granted to her by whom? By God. To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, let me raise a very practical question and we'll move on. How does the bride prepare herself for the coming of Christ? How is it that in the book of Revelation, believers are told they are to make themselves ready for the great day when the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, comes to receive them? I think four things dominate Revelation in this regard. Number one, the bride prepares herself by remaining faithful to Christ in a fallen and evil world. The bride of Christ prepares herself by remaining faithful to Christ in a fallen and evil world. Uh, next spring, we're going to start our walk through the book of Daniel. I am ha- I've already started working on it. And I'm having a blast because Daniel is an incredible individual who remains faithful to God in a fallen, broken pagan, idolatrous, debaucherous, evil world. He never flinches. He never blinks. And he trusts God all the way into the lion's den. Secondly, the bride prepares herself by enduring hardship in the midst of suffering. We expect it to come. Three, the bride prepares herself by trusting in God, even in the face of martyrdom. And number four, the bride prepares herself by obeying God to take the gospel to all the tribes, the tongues, the peoples, and the nations. So that's how we then prepare ourselves. That's how we make ourselves ready, the end of verse 7. And in response to that, our God grants to us that we now can be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And He tells you what those things are. The fine linen is the righteous deeds, the good works of the Saints. And so, glorify God for His bride. Number three, worship God for the witness of Jesus. Worship God for the witness of Jesus. Verse 9 and verse 10. Now the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I, I'm going to add a statement here, did something really dumb. I fell down at his feet, that is the feet of an angel, to worship him. And he was not happy. He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant, a fellow doulos. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the very spirit of prophecy. Let me begin our last two verses again with a quote from John Piper about worship. Quote, 
Worship is what the whole book of Revelation is about, and I think he's correct. That's the point of all of God's judgments, and I think he's correct. All of God's dealings with the world. All of God's plans for history, from beginning to end, have this one goal, worshiping God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. Don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. And then listen to this insightful um, uh, observation about who we are in this world. The church is an alien outpost in Babylon. And we exist to reassert God's rightful place wherever it has been prostituted to secular commerce, our secular education, our secular entertainment, our secular media, our secular arts, our secular sports. All the people of God are exiles in Babylon and are called to be filled with the spirit of prophecy. And the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And that means Lord over every area of secular life in Babylon. In other words, Martin Luther used to say, the devil is still God's devil. Babylon is still God's Babylon. He owns it. He controls it. It is not outside of his preview. Okay? So let's just make sure we keep things in proper perspective. God's not in heaven. Oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. No, 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 no. He's never caught by surprise. And nothing happens that he does not either providentially cause or providentially allow. All right? So John concludes, As an alien outpost in Babylon, we know what's coming, and we know what the worship of heaven is going to be like when Babylon comes down and God stands forth to vindicate His Son. And we know from verse 10 that the reason this has all been revealed to us ahead of time is that we might properly worship God. God lets John hear the celebration of heaven so that in his exile and his suffering, he might join in and worship God. And so John wrote it down in the book so that we might listen to the worship of heaven and join in with them. So look at verse 9. John is given a command by an angel to write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That word right is an imperative, a word of command. He also says that those who are invited are blessed. This is the fourth of the seven blessings in the book of Revelation. You've got them somewhere in your notes, but if you don't, you find the first one in chapter 1, verse 3. The second one in chapter 14, verse 13. The third one in chapter 16, verse 15. The fourth one right here in chapter 19, verse 9. And then we will see the fifth one in chapter 20, verse 6. The sixth one in chapter 22, verse 7. And the last one in chapter 22, verse 14. Seven blessings in Revelation. And here he says, Blessed are those who participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is going to stand in stark contrast to what we see next week when you have the great supper of God in chapter 19, verses 17, 18, and 19, when all of the birds come. I think it's the, uh, the, the, uh, the genesis of Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. You ever seen The Birds? 
That movie still scares the bejabbers out of me. Black and white, ancient. But I mean, the guy with the eyes poked out in the bathroom, you know, I still have nightmares from that. And I'm 58 years old now. And so I think that's where he got the whole idea from Revelation 19 where the birds come and basically eat all the flesh of all the evil people that are left at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. We will see that next week. Alright? So there's a stark contrast between, oh, I get to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, no, I get to go to the great supper of God. You do not want to go to the great supper of God because you are the main meal. So, the angel adds his own word of affirmation and he says, these words are the true words of God. You can count on them. You can take them to the bank. Well, verse 10, John's overwhelmed by the whole thing. He falls at the feet of the angel and begins to worship him, which is both sin and the sin of idolatry. Even a being like an angel is still a creature and therefore is not to be worshipped. So the angel gives him a quick and stiff rebuke. You must not do that. Why? Well, he gives you a couple of reasons. Number one, well, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. I'm just another servant of God like you are. Uh, so I'm, I'm just a faithful witness, all right? Second, we're only to worship one person. And that one person is God. Worship God. The clear implication is we're to worship God and only God. Uh, in my notes, I wrote down 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21 where the Bible says, Little children, flee or keep yourselves from idols. So anything other than God being worshipped is idolatry, even an angel. Alright? Then thirdly, he says, For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit a prophecy. You say, what does that mean? Now, here's what I've written down in my notes to be very precise. The idea, I believe, is that the true spirit of prophecy always bears witness to Jesus. The true spirit of prophecy always bears witness to Jesus. The true spirit of prophecy always points to Jesus. And one of my teaching heroes, John MacArthur, agrees. Dr. MacArthur says this, and I quote, the central theme of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. Until the coming of His kingdom, all who proclaim the gospel must be faithful to the testimony of Jesus, the saving gospel message, which was His message. David uh, Levy, who writes regularly in Israel, My Glory, says it this way, In this book, prophecy is designed to unfold Christ's character, glory, purpose, and program. Therefore, worship God alone. With these words, the scene is set for the manifestation of Jesus Christ as the glorified King of kings and the Lord of lords. Only one word is appropriate. It is the word, hallelujah. So, let me close. Scott Duvall, another friend of mine, wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, and uh, I've been greatly blessed by it. He came to the end of chapter 19 and said there are at least nine themes that just naturally roll out of this particular chapter for our careful consideration. And I like them. And so I've written them down. I'll just share them with you very quickly and then we'll pray and go home. But these are things that naturally flow out of the fact that we worship the Lord our God, the Almighty, as His bride who is now prepared to be married to the Lamb that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we go. Number one. God's people are called to rejoice at the demonstration of God's righteous judgments. Absolutely. 
Number two, evil power sinners are guilty of arrogance, deception, and murder. Yes, that is exactly who Babylon is. Number three, God will avenge the suffering of His people. There is coming a day of reckoning. Number four, God is to be praised for His just and true judgments. They are reflections of His righteous and faithful character. Five, God deserves praise and glory for beginning His universal reign. Six, Jesus relates to His people like a husband to His bride. Seven, God's people, in contrast to the great prostitute, are clothed in righteous acts. Eight, angels, like believing humans, are fellow servants who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Nine, God alone deserves worship. For He by His Spirit is the source of the prophecy that is the prophetic message that is all about Jesus. And so as one man said, once more we see, it really is all about Jesus. That has always been God's plan and nothing will keep it from ever coming to pass. So, the stage is set. Next week, probably uh, next to Revelation 5, my favorite passage in the entire book, the second coming of Jesus, chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 21. Go ahead and read it ahead of time. And then next week, we will just have a really delightful experience of walking through those verses and seeing how great is the God who is coming again. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage that uh, reminds us that this world is not our home and uh, that we have uh, no... um, No groom in this world we want to wed ourselves to uh, because there is a lamb sitting up on a throne in heaven who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's going to be my husband. Uh, That's going to be the the, the God, the Lord, the Master, the King that I am wedded to for all of my life and forever and ever and ever. And he is preeminently worthy because he has indeed shed his blood on our behalf. And Lord, I thank you that you are going to avenge the shed blood of your martyrs, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who have died throughout the ages because they remain faithful to You even in the face of death. Lord, I don't know that any of us will ever face that, but if we do, give us that same faith, that same commitment, that if indeed our lives are put on the line, we will say, our God is worthy. And we will trust You to see us through, knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, knowing that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. With a hope like that, Lord, may we stand faithful to the very end. We ask and pray this in Jesus' strong and saving name. Amen. See you next Wednesday night.